Hello, good morning. Uh, I'm speaking from Thailand. We are in the time of crisis all over the world. The outbreak of COVID-19, and uh, one of the most important issue for the control of the COVID-19 is the infection prevention and control. And this. Uh, we have been both in the community setting and also in the hospital settings. But my focus today will be on the uh, hospital infection control. So the basic principle of infection control constitutes the two main parts. One is the technical issues, and the second is administrative issues. The technical issues involve the early diagnosis, early isolation, and proper use of personal protective equipment or PPE. Uh, in order to make all these things happen and run continuously and effectively, uh, we need to also uh, concerning the administrative issues for this. For example, we have to have a, a consensus um, agreement on surveillance definition that everyone uses the same thing. Uh, we have to have consensus infection prevention and control guidelines. And then we have to be uh, prepared by training our healthcare workers and uh, the stockpile of the PPE. So all of this I will give description in brief in some issues. So we have the screening criteria, which I uh, will not go into details. Basically, we based on the uh, CDC and WHO uh, recommendation and uh, we get some parts from the China because uh, China is the first countries that have uh, outbreak of COVID-19. So uh, the basic screening criteria will constitute the history, history of exposure and the symptoms that are consistent with pneumonia and upper respiratory infections. And the uh, surveillance definition should include both community people and also healthcare workers. For this guideline, I think I have provided uh, the link that uh, can be downloaded if you want. Uh, through the Department of Disease Control, so I provide the link here. So the symptoms of uh, COVID-19 is something that we need to know in order to uh, detect the case early. And the main symptoms constitute uh, something like cough, fever, uh, myalgia, sort of viral symptoms. And interestingly, that uh, at the first presentation, about half the patients will have fevers and uh, the half will not have fever. So if we focus on only fever, we may miss about half of the case. For the COVID-19 cases, if we admit them into the hospital, finally, almost 100% will have fever. And then the, the most interesting symptoms for me is the anosmia. People will not perceive the flavor and the taste of the food as usual. And that's because of the blockage of the uh, pathway for uh, flavor that will enter the olfactory nerve at the base of skull so that the nerve uh, will not perceive there is food or there is something that's smelly so people cannot smell. So that is a prominent symptoms that uh, I think it is very um, characteristic for the COVID-19 that we should be aware of. That are the main thing for the, for the symptom recognition. So. Um, but not all people will have the same symptoms, so the, the symptom will be something like we call syndrome, that you need, you need to look at many, many things. But the, basically, the history of exposure, traveling to the area with the endemic disease, and respiratory symptoms. And um, the respiratory symptoms among these patients will uh, occur gradually and uh, slowly progressive within one week. Um, and then in the second week, they will have pneumonia. 
um, whenever someone comes in with acute severe pneumonia that progress rapidly, uh, they cannot breathe within one, two days of symptoms uh, beginning, then uh, this is uh, not characteristic of COVID-19. The COVID-19 will uh, start with very mild symptoms and progress gradually in one week, then uh, in the second week, they will develop severe disease, if they will. Uh, but not all people who have COVID-19 will have severe disease. About 80% are milder symptoms, and then 20% will have uh, more severe symptoms among all. And then 5% uh, will be uh, very severe that they probably need to be in the ICU. So not all people will have uh, severe symptoms. That is a very uh, problematic for this disease because if everyone who gets sick with a SARS-CoV-2 infection, and then when, then uh, we very easy to uh, recognize and diagnose and separate them from others. But because these people usually do not have uh, bad symptoms at the outset, then um, they can walk to many places and spreading out the disease without uh, being aware of that. So this is a problem of the, the COVID-19. And I show the picture here, the blockage of the olfactory bulb, which uh, is the cause of anosmia or and uh, inability to uh, perceive the, the smell. And x-ray of the uh, COVID-19 is something that physicians and nurses should be uh, knowledgeable on this. And I think as of now, there are so many publications on the chest x-ray appearance of the COVID-19 patients. Uh, even though um, you don't have uh, COVID-19 patients in the country, but I think it is a good idea to look through the literature, how the chest x-ray appearance will look like. So that when you see the patient who comes in with respiratory symptoms, you will recognize the disease easy. Because the early recognition of the disease syndrome is one of the main components of the infection prevention and control. So in summary on the diagnosis of the disease is that in the first week, the patient will have mild symptoms and then they begin to have a very severe disease starting on the, uh, late on the first week and then uh, progress later on. And once they have pneumonia at the end of first week, then after that, the cause of the disease will be very, very rapid. The first day pneumonia, second day they require uh, oxygen, and the third day they require intubation, and fourth day they defy, require ICU admission. So that is very rapid. That is very much different from the first week where uh, when the disease is very mild. So one more thing about the recognition of the disease is that because um, most of people don't have, don't have symptoms, so at the time of uh, outbreak in our countries, about two, three months ago, when we had more than 100 cases per day, so there was a concern that, well, um, someone might come in without symptoms and then we perform surgery or we perform something that generates aerosol or droplets in a large, large amount. So that will be harmful to other people, including uh, doctors and uh, nurses and all patients all around. So there was a question that do we have to perform that diagnostic test for all patients who visit the hospitals, particularly those who will enter the operating room. So we decided to um, do a surveillance on that and the data, the data is that well, we, we found two cases early on when we had so many cases in the community. Uh, but later on, later from that, the two cases we found was in early of April, and after that, we did not find anything at all. So 
the answer to this question is that it depends on how bad the situation is. Right as of now, we stop doing uh, routine screening for the COVID-19 for people who come into the hospital, no matter what they want, want to be in, uh, no matter what like operation is, is needed, ICU admission is needed, or just uh, walk in. So we don't perform routine screening for the COVID-19 because the disease is practically under well control right now. Uh, but if you have a very high incidence of uh, COVID-19, you may consider doing uh, a broad surveillance for admit uh, for the pe patients who will be hospitalized. This is this depends on the um, prevalence of disease because if you know statistic is that if the prevalence of disease is low, then uh, the chance of having true positive test is also low too. So if the disease have a high prevalence the probability of having true positive is much higher. But in any way, I think um, the practice of doing routine lab tests for uh, COVID-19 is probably um, resource consuming. So I would go by uh, symptoms and history of exposure as a baseline. And then uh, if we suspect that that particular patient might have COVID-19, then we do the lab test. So I will not go with routine lab test because that is costly. It costs around uh, 1,500 baht approximately per one PCR test in our country. So if you do the test for like 10,000 or 100,000 people, you're going to use a lot of uh, money on that. So that is not cost-effectiveness to me. And then uh, when once we recognize that the patient have uh, COVID-19, then we need uh, early isolation. The early isolation will start from the, from the first step that patients comes into the hospital. So each hospital will, should have training points for our patient who comes in. Actually, um, people can come to the emergency department as well. So I would say practically all entry points to the hospital must have uh, screening. Some hospital might consider uh, do um, temperature screening, but this can be missed easily. So we also have a symptom screening sets as well. We ask people whether you have fever, you have coughing, abnormal uh, smelling. Some hospital may uh, you know, uh, create the uh, Google form or some kind of uh, online surveillance so that people can enter the data by themselves and then just look at the, out the, the summary of that form. Then we can easily recognize that this patient may or may not have COVID-19, either in both in the emergency department and also in the outpatient department and uh, operating room as well. Then after the screening, then uh, if we see someone who have uh, symptoms and history consistent with suspicious COVID-19, um, then we um, transfer them to an appropriate area. Uh, for example, the outpatient department that have a designated area for this patient that yeah, should be separate to others and uh, should have like separate ventilation system. As essentially, we, we cannot uh, have a separate area. That area should have a separate isolate, uh, the ventilation system. So before we go deep uh, into the detail of isolation and prevention, I would uh, emphasize here that uh, we need to know how SARS-CoV-2 spread. If you remember during the time that, has, uh, that was uh, in the large pandemic in this region about two, three months ago, uh, there was a 
information coming out, coming out uh, from many sources that um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus can uh, flew in the air for a long, long period of time through a small aerosol, like smaller than five micrometer. And people were uh, afraid of, uh, you know, uh, aerosol transmission of the virus. But in fact, as of now, there is no evidence that this virus can be transmitted through aerosol via the air that is uh, very long distance, except in some special condition. For example, in a bus, where there is a close space there, in a van or in an ICU with a closed door. But in the open space, all epidemiological uh, uh, data support the uh, concept of droplet transmission. That is, if you stay away from people for one to two meters, uh, you practically will be safe. In addition to that, if you use masks, then you have more protection on the virus. Okay, so this is a very important concept of trans transmission. That is the main idea is uh, why this virus transmit via droplet that is larger than five micrometer, and we can use simple protective barrier, that which I, I will uh, give a detail later on. Another thing is that uh, when or how long people can uh, shed the infectious viral particle during the first three months of the pandemic, uh, people were uh, very much afraid of you know uh, persistent transmission longer than a month because uh, when uh, patients were admitted to the hospital usually doctors would like to know when will this patient be free of virus so we perform PCR tests in fact the PCR test is a test that uh, detects the uh, viral RNA not the viable virus but at the time we don't we did not have enough uh, knowledge to be sure that uh, positive PDR means uh, infectious virus or just the RNA that is the residual of the infection and they cannot uh, make the disease anymore. Uh, later on there were there are few publications that make us know that uh, in fact the positive PCR after two weeks after 10 days of onset you know if we if you get six on the first day and then uh, later, later on, on day 10, day 11, 12, after that, when you perform PCR, you're going to get a positive result from the RNA. But if you take the samples to do the cultures, you cannot prove the virus anymore. So that means the infectivity of the SARS-CoV-2 probably uh, not beyond 10 or 11 days after having symptoms. So there are a few uh, publications on that. So um, right now we know that when people have COVID-19, they are safe in terms of uh, transmission of the disease when after the 10th of illness, most of them cannot transmit the disease anymore. And a study in Taiwan show us that the peak of transmission occur about two days before symptoms onset. That is the beginning, and then the, if you peak around 0.7 days before symptoms onset. So that means the pre-symptomatic transmission of the virus is uh, very important. And then after that, people who exposed to COVID-19 patients after day six don't develop infection at all. So that means the, after the patient has symptoms for more than a week, the problem of infection control is probably less than something else like treatment or something like, something like that. So right now we have a guideline. In Thailand, we still um, 
put the patients in the hospital or in an isolation place for a month because of the uh, concern of the public. But we're going to move to um, shorter duration of isolation for the known COVID-19, probably only two weeks or symptom-based, like, you know, if uh, that particular patient don't have symptoms of three days, then we can uh, safely send him home without, you know, concern about the transmission of the, the disease. So that we can uh, optimize the uh, resource use much more than this. But at the early on of the pandemic, we were so much afraid of transmission, so we put the patient in the hospital for at least 14 days, but before we, we put them in the hospital for a month. But now we know that uh, we probably don't need to do so. We need to put them in the hospital for, at the maximum, I think 14 days should be sufficient. Another facet of the infection transmission is uh, um, fomites. So there are some studies that the uh, virus can uh, persist on the surface for hours or days. So um, scientists uh, went to the uh, patient's room and then they uh, performed swabs and uh, they found that, in fact, uh, they can follow the virus uh, close to the area that patients uh, stay and uh, in the air as well, but not very far from the patients. So this is consistent with the concept of droplet transmission because aerosol can go very far, but droplet can go not very far. So they found the virus close to the area that patients stay in, and also the surface as well. It depends on the uh, intensity of contact. For the high contact surface, they have a high amount of virus. But well, it is very easy. When they perform cultures on the surface in a room before cleaning and also after cleaning, with simple antiseptic. And what if I was with simple antiseptic cleaning? They don't find any virus. But before cleaning, they, they found them. So it means that in order to deactivate the virus on the surface, you don't need, um, you know, really luxurious antiseptic. Just simple antiseptic that people use routinely can work. Then um, another issue is the isolation room. Because of the concern of aerosol transmission, that might happen sometime. And this happened in the hospital, not in the community. Because in the hospital, uh, we perform a lot of the so-called aerosol generating procedures. That is putting something into the mouth and into the airway of the patient. So in that situation, the patient will, will be coughing a lot. And, they generate a lot of the droplets and also aerosols that can uh, you know, go through the air for a very far distance from the patient. So in the hospital, we need something we call airborne infection isolation room, which is um, very costly to, to build one. Because in this room, you have to have a negative pressure ventilation. That is, when you open the door, the air from outside will always goes through the door from outside into the room not from the room, go to outside. So this is negative pressure room. And then the air that is going out from the room must be exhausted through specific pathway that is safe for people. For example, goes very far from the area where people walk by, and then that will be safe. Or preferably, uh, we put high efficiency particulate air filter or HEPA filter in the exhaust pathway so that the air that uh, passes through the exhausted uh, tubes can go to outside 
or recirculate back into the room of the patient so that it will be a clean air and then everyone will be safe. In order to uh, have this type of room, so you need you know, air conditioning system, you have control direction of the flow and you, you need the HEPA filter. Beyond that, you need a good architecture, architect and also engineer that is knowledgeable in building this side of room and it is costly. Then uh, this is the concept of airborne infection isolation room and we need this room not only for uh, single patients but also for the people in the ICU and also in the operating room. So are the things that we need to consider because they are costly and they are difficult to build and all hospitals in our country do not have you know high number of these types of room because of uh, the space and also the the resource and everything so we have like one or two rooms per hospital at the beginning of the outbreak so we uh, um, we get together for all hospitals in Bangkok area and also from the Minister of Health to see that how can we uh, modify our ICU to be able to accommodate this type of patients and also uh, try to uh, modify some operating room to be able to take care of COVID-19 patients as well. Some areas that we cannot modify because of uh, any kind of uh, obstacle. Then we have uh, another thing that is the isolation room without pressure control, but that room should have a single bed and then adequate ventilation. And th that type of room can be easily constructed by, you know, modify the, the room that we have and then put the exhaust fan that is effectively, effectively uh, drain out the air in the room, from the room into outside. It is a unique directional exhaust fan that can be installed in a simple room anywhere in the hospital. So that in that type of situation, people in the hospital will be safe. We have that kind of rooms available in our hospital as well. It is not a true negative pressure, but it is a control direction of the flow from the hallway through the patient's room and to, then to the outside of the building. And our healthcare workers who work with our COVID patients don't have infection at all. So this type of room is easy to build and it is safe for everyone. And also the outpatient department, I would recommend that for the OPD, if you do not have you know, air ventilation system for the outpatient, you have only our, uh, the open air environment that is perfect because with the open air environment, there's a really less chance of having uh, COVID transmission. But if you have air conditioning system, then you need to consider something like, you know, you need direction of floor uh, room so that you can sit at one side, then the air will pass through to doctors, through nurse, and then to patients and go to the outside. That this is something that you need to consider. And I also have some example from the AAR design that is uh, from the CDC guidelines for the uh, prevention of tuberculosis in the hospital. This is simple. You have air supply entering the room from one side and then go out from another side. This is unique direction of flow. One more thing is that the, uh, the use of PPE or personal protective equipment. I think people are all over the globe are very much obsessive on the use of N95 masks because of the media or the, the media that transmit the information that this virus might be transmitted through an aerosol for a long distance of time and distance. So people are very obsessive on using N95 and uh, we don't have enough N95 everywhere in the world. So the proper use of uh, protective equipment is a major issue when we deal with an outbreak.
like this. So this is an example of infection control response to COVID-19 in Hong Kong. Conceptually, they ask people to use N95 masks whenever they perform aerosol generating procedure, for example, intubation or you know bronchoscopy, something like that. Other than that, they can use simple surgical masks. This is something that they implement. And what they do is that they make sure that whenever you need to wear a mask, you wear a mask. You don't go to see a patient without a mask. So with high percentage of adherence to this practice. So healthcare workers in Hong Kong basically don't have uh, infection because of the taking care of the patients at all. So this is a safe practice. Uh, this is a result of a survey in the 400 healthcare workers and also they perform uh, surveillance also in the environment. So what they found was that uh, with, with basic uh, infection control practice that they have been practicing for years, in fact, they implement this kind of practice since at the time of SARS-1. So people in Hong Kong were familiar with simple infection control practice like wearing a mask and also hand washing. Since at the time SARS outbreak long ago and they have been practicing this. So in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, so we can see that Hong Kong can control the disease very well and they have a lot of uh, communication with the mainland China so that they don't have big outbreak over there with only simple practice. Here's the uh, guidelines that we uh, make. So we categorize the activities. I mean, we categorize the patient care activity according to the risk of transmission so that people will know what type of PPE they need and what type of practice they have to do. For example, the very low risk. So they need what we find low risk. Low risk means you stay longer than, I mean, farther than a meter from a patient and you do not perform, you know, invasive procedures with the area of the patient. These are the low risk. So in this circumstance, they just only use you know, simple surgical mask. If uh, moderate risk, probably they need something more, you know, maybe needing the face shield because you are afraid that patient might be coughing and you, the uh, droplet will get onto your face, something like that. So, so you need more protection from, from the PPE. And with the very high risk, you need even the uh, so-called cover-all. I tell you that at the time of pandemic, uh, people were so afraid of you know getting disease from the patients. So some patients, some of my staff told me that well, we should you know stock the cover-all for our healthcare worker, and then we need a lot of that. So we need to find the cover-all in the large amount so that we are sure that we are safe. But in fact, putting cover-all onto your body is not very easy. But the more difficult is to take it off. Taking cover or off from the body is very difficult to do because if you do not perform it correctly, you will be contaminated on your hands and on your face easily. And even putting on cover or you might have infection with SARS-CoV-2 as well. So in order to do this, we have to have something that is very complicated. So now uh, people in hospital know that they actually they don't need cover or for all situations. When do they need cover all? Is the situation when they, they are taking care of the patients in the ICU who are intubating using ventilator and they are going to perform invasive procedure to the area of the patient. So in that circumstance, they would need uh, cover all. And whenever they put on cover all, you have always have a body to observe when you take off the cover all, whether you perform it correctly or not. If contamination happens, 
then you have to decontaminate the area that have contamination. So if you have a body, then they will tell you, are your right hands are now contaminated, so you have to put all alcohol for, on your right hands, something like that. So in doing this way, our healthcare workers will be safe. Another issue is the N95. You know, we do not have N95 in uh, enough numbers. So our young staff here look through literature and perform some experiments and they come up with the recommendation that N95 can be reused a few more times. So they use simple UV. And the one we use, the milk bottle for infants, they have a sterilizer for a milk bottle that use UV. So we modify from there. We put two, a couple of identify into that sterilizer and turn on the UV light for 10-15 minutes and that will do the job. And it will decontaminate the virus from one side at a time. Then if you want to decontaminate both sides, you just flip it. Flip your nose, I mean flip the uh, the mask and then you turn on the UV light one more time. Then the N95 mask can be used. And the problem is that when we reuse the N95, the uh, integrity of the mask will be uh, lost gradually. So the principle of using the mask is that for N95, you have to know how to do the fit check. Whenever you put on the N95, do the fit checks whether new mask or the reuse, the mask that has been reprocessed. When you put on, no matter what, you have to perform the fit check. So the fit check, the concept is just, you know, put your hands at the margin of the mask and then breathe through. You feel there is air coming to your hands. Then you have to, you know, adjust your nose, your mask, so that you don't feel, you know, the expiratory air touch your hands, so that yeah, your mask is fit to the face. So in that situation, you are safe. But for surgical masks, we don't need to do so because in that circumstance, when you need surgical mask, that means you are performing a low-risk procedure. So uh, with distance and also masks, you are safe when you perform the healthcare for your patient. All these have a lot of details of construction and details of uh, using PPE, uh, when and how and what PPE, what type PPE you use, how to use properly how to, you know, wash the hands. So there are so many things. In this uh, situation, there are so many recommendations for many, many people, many groups, and people get confused easily. Especially uh, we are in the world of, you know, electronic. We are in the world of internet that can go quickly. Something happened here, instantaneously. People in the US will know what happened. So this happened to the fake news. This happened to the fake information that can easily confuse people. The practice of using PPE and also the uh, construction of the isolation room, all the things related to infection prevention and control, no matter what it is, true or false, can be transmitted very easily through the internet. So it is very essential for us to make a consensus guideline, the consensus agreement about construction, about areas, what we need, about PPE, all these things. And then how to make that? So here we, um, with the collaboration between the Ministry of Public Health and uh, professional organization like Infectious Disease Association of Thailand, uh, which I am currently the president of that organization, and then also the uh, 
Society of Infection Controllers, Society of Hospital Infection Control, Department of Medical Science, Department of Disease Control. So all stakeholders uh, come together. We sit around like a round table discussion, and then we brought the issue step by step, one by one, one by one. Uh, we went through everything all together, and then we have the consensus guideline. And after having the consensus guideline, then we distribute the guideline to everyone. So now, because in the process of making guideline, we involve all peoples who are, you know, taking care of the patients. They are representative from every single organization. So that it is easier now for people to accept this guideline and then we have a unique guideline for us. And the guideline that is distributed must be written in the clear language, easy to understand, and you can you know, modify uh, from the text into infographic and then distribute so that uh, you make a poster post in front of the ICU at the nurse station in front of the patient care unit so that when the healthcare workers who ever come in, they can easily spot what type of PPE they need to use and, and how to use it, like that. So all these things must be you know, conducted in a systematic way so that people know what to do correctly. And then with that, we also have to have a training. But the training for healthcare workers, I would say that, in fact, we have been there training our healthcare workers for a long, long time, particularly when the times of MERS, COVID outbreaks. So we have both the lecture, we have some more work, uh, workshop, and then we put poster. Uh, sometimes we have the tabletop you know, simulation of the, of the event, and then we simulate. And then we ask the trainees to perform whatever that might happen. And once when the, pa the patient comes with respiratory symptoms, we just you know, act as, uh, as if he has a burst COVID. So what do you do? So something like that. So, so the training is important. And the content of training should include, you know, uh, PPE should include hand washing or hand hygiene. In this hospital, Grammativity Hospital, we have been, you know, campaigning the hand hygiene for 10 years past. And right as of now, we still do it, you know, teaching people to always perform hand hygiene correctly. It's something we need to do all the time because we keep having new generation of people coming in. So we have to train them all the time so that they will perform this kind of activities routinely. Whenever they see the patient, they clean their hands and uh, they know how to use the mask. They know how to use surgical mask. They know how to use N95 and they use them correctly all the time. So when you have a pandemic, no matter what, COVID-19, COVID-25, Ebola, anything that is a pandemic disease that is emerging, the practice that you have been training for the healthcare workers will be something that protects everyone. So do not stop training. So in summary, I would say that uh, we all have to protect ourselves. We have to prepare the hospitals. If we don't have facility to isolate the patients, consider building some. You know, you always need isolation rooms with the uh, negative pressures. You need directional flow. And there will be various kind of isolation room that is according to the feasibility of the resource available in each country. It doesn't have to be very luxurious, but it needs to be uh, working well in the sense of, you know, direction of flow and the adequacy of ventilation. If you have not trained 
your healthcare workers to be a familiar with the personal protection, then you start. And uh, if you do not uh, know what types of patients might have COVID-19, then start training, telling people uh, how to diagnose, how to recognize your patients, and how to isolate. So all these things will protect all of us to be safe, and then we can perform the job to save our people as well. Thank you very much.